Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's just-concluded trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia, where he met with Gulf and regional leaders, many of whom want Trump back in the White House. Pledging a U.S. commitment to stay in the region that Obama wanted to pivot away from to focus on China, we'll assess what Biden gained from meeting with the pariah prince MBS, who offered little to help lower the price of oil and instead suggested we should not limit emissions to deal with global warming, but should produce more oil. Joining us is Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude, and is considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. His latest book just out is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. Then we'll examine the one man in America who not only shares MBS's objections to reduce fossil fuel dependence to save the planet, but was able to stymie for a second time Biden's efforts to do something about it. Joining us is David Dayen, the executive editor of the American Prospect and the winner of the Ida and Studs Terkel Prize. He's the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud and Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin Story, and his latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. We will discuss his article at the American Prospect on the futility of dealing with Joe Manchin. May Build Back Better Never Be Spoken Of Again. Then finally, we'll get an update on the January 6th committee investigation and question why the House committee is doing all the work while the Department of Justice, with vast resources and subpoena power, is sitting on its hands prosecuting low-level insurrectionists instead of those who planned and led the coup attempt. Joining us is Corey Brettschneider, a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics, as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, and his latest book is Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude. He's currently one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his latest book just out is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Baer. Thank you. 
So given that you uh, wrote the book uh, Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude some time back, and my understanding is that before you left the CIA, you went through all of the files that uh, you could make public on Saudi Arabia and presented a really damning picture of this, the kingdom, this family-run country and its duplicitous relationship with the United States. And now we've had the President of the United States go both to Israel and to a, a Gulf security meeting in Jeddah. And the question is, why did Biden do it? He got nothing out of it particularly from the Saudis, except bad press. Well, I mean, he did this for Israel, basically. He, he wanted, you know, the flight started up between Riyadh and Tel Aviv. And it's this whole thing of which he thinks is popular, uh, furthering the Abraham Accords. And uh, as for the Saudis, I mean, the kingdom I wrote about in my book, sleeping with the devil is gone. It's a tyranny. It's, it's a one-man rule by Mohammed bin Salman, wh- whom we know is, is, is a butcher. I mean, he chopped up Khashoggi. He, he gave the orders and didn't mind, you know, putting it on WhatsApp so that we found out he didn't care. It was a message to all Saudis that if you get out of line, we're going to cut you up with a bone saw. It's just that simple. And as far as Biden going through the motions of getting the Saudis to pump more oil, that was never going to happen. Because right now we can see what the Saudis are doing. They're buying Russian oil at a great discount and then exporting their own. And this arbitrage they're making off this war in Ukraine is just fantastic. We're talking trillions of dollars. And this is not a question this wasn't known to the White House, but this president's in trouble and he thinks if he just goes through the motions of you know getting the saudis to pump more oil bring gasoline prices down here there's some benefit but going to saudi arabia now it, it was an act of desperation i just don't see it any other way but on saturday the saudi crown prince mohammed bin salman said that more investment was needed in fossil fuels and that unrealistic emissions policies would lead to unprecedented levels of inflation. And then he went on to say that they could raise production capacity to 13 million barrels a day by 2027, above the 12 million, which is what they're doing today. But then he said, after that, the kingdom will not have any more capacity to increase production. We don't even know, do we, Bob, what kind of reserves they have, whether... They're really coming clean on, on the reserves and, and they're borrowing huge amounts of money based upon an endless supply of oil, aren't they? Uh, that's true. We don't know. It's a secret how, what their reserves are. There's a lot of technical studies that I've read um, that shows they're overbooking them so they can borrow more money. Um, and they be, may be running out a lot faster than we know. It's one of these things. It's like predicting that Lake Powell was going to go dry, but not until it actually goes dry will we know for sure. I mean, I think the Saudi aquifers are also dry, and, and then they're, they're pumping more, more oil because of that, desalinization. And then it, it, it's a cycle. 
it's not sustainable. And as for pollution and global warming, Europe is burning up. Texas is burning up. I'm not sure what, I mean, what all would have to burn up to convince people we are looking into the stinking, bloody abyss of extinction if we just continue the way we are. Well, what MBS said on Saturday is exactly increasing that possibility. He said, adopting unrealistic policies to reduce emissions by excluding main sources of energy will lead in coming years to unprecedented inflation and an increase in energy prices and rising unemployment and a worsening of serious social and security problems. So he's not saying we're making out like bandits. All he's saying is you need more and more oil and I'm <laughs> I'm the beneficiary. So if you combine MBS, his attitude with the oil companies who clearly wanted make money out of the last drop of oil. And then you've got Joe Manchin in the Senate blocking his biggest recipient of money from uh, the fossil fuel companies. He owns a coal company, the family company, uh, and he's blocking any climate change legislation. So if you combine Joe Manchin with MBS, it's like a, a, a ticket t- towards doom. It is. They're, they're like heroin pushers. It's all right. No, you, they're saying you need more of this. Let me give you another shot. Yeah, you'll die, but, you know, you'll feel good. Well, not, you know, I would say for the next couple of years, but you won't. I mean, this this whole cycle of of immediate gratification is dooming us. It is. I live in Colorado. You you can see that the river and the and the the snow is, is just going away. It's heating up the southwest United States is going to be unlivable uh, at, at a certain point in a certain point very soon. But we, we have no willingness in Washington to do anything about it because uh, it, Washington is bought. I sound like Trump. I know I apologize, but it is the swamp. And you've got all these big institutions like Brookings and the rest of them, which we know are funded by golf countries. General Allen was forced out because he was taking what amounts to payments, you know, back payments. So I don't I don't see. Unless the American people rise up and the people in Europe rise up and demand that money be taken out of oil and put in alternative energies or carbon capture, I just don't see a happy ending to this. And I'm more than willing to listen to somebody say you're absolutely totally wrong because we have this Hail Mary and whatever it may be. And again, I'm speaking with Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude. He's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his latest book just out is The Fourth Man the hunt for a KGB spy at the top of the CIA, and the rise of Putin's Russia. So your book then, is just uh, going back to your earlier book, Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude, was a warning some time back, and we still haven't, uh, the Saudis still haven't come clean about 9-11 and their role in it. That's not to say that the Saudi royal family necessarily planned the thing, although 
what was it, 15 of the 19 hijackers came from Saudi Arabia. They certainly know a lot more about what happened than than they're telling us, don't they? Yeah, they don't they don't know how the 15 were recruited. Um, the key witnesses were put under their control. Um, they haven't come clean. Um, I tend to look at this in the best light, and that is the family didn't know. They just this thing got away with them. But the fact is they are not cooperating in the most important criminal criminal investigation in American history. They're not cooperating. That's that's just true. I mean, we all know that. It's a matter of record. Um, and the fact that the crown prince, the de facto leader, would order a Washington Post contributor chopped up alive and there's no repercussions, that's, that's why I came up with the title, Sleeping with the Devil. And anybody who apologizes for this guy, Mohammed bin Salman, who's put his family in jail and is running this tyranny, it is, you know, disingenuous, to put it nicely. Well, Saad al-Jabri, the former intelligence chief working under Prince Nayef, who was, who was originally the crown prince, and what happened was that with Trump's intervention and urging, they were able to leapfrog MBS over Mohammed bin Nayef, who was popular in Washington. And then, of course, Trump's first visit to Saudi Arabia was conspicuously basically helping MBS burnish his image. And clearly he's, he's about to become king because his father is has Alzheimer's. So the same hit team that killed and chopped up Khashoggi went to Canada to kill Saad al-Jabri, but the Canadians caught them. He was on 60 Minutes uh, last Sunday, just, and he knows MBS and said the guy's a sociopath. He has no human empathy. And uh, I just don't understand uh, what, what can we do. The idea that this guy is going to become the king of Saudi Arabia and is the dangerous punk that he is, is there any recourse? Biden clearly didn't achieve anything. What can be done? Well, we can. We're not in a position to, to, I mean, he's destroyed the royal family as it used to run on consensus. That's destroyed. That's gone. He's, he's taken princes and, and hanged them by their feet um, in, a, in a makeshift prison. So that's over. Those days are over. And the United States does not have the assets in Saudi Arabia or the influence to change the government there. So it's sort of like we have to live with him. Um, and we're incapable of predicting what he'll do next. He's a psychopath. We don't know. I mean, is, is he capable of murdering people in this country who oppose him? Well, if he's going to go to Canada and try to kill Jabri, why not? Do we have Saudi assassination teams in Washington killing their critics? You know, if I would have said that 10 years ago, it would have sounded like a complete unhinged conspiracy theory. But now I don't know anymore. Well, they've just killed a couple of uh, Saudi opposition figures in Lebanon. No, they've been doing that for years. Lebanon's an easy place to kill people. It's just the question is, would he cross that red line of doing it in the United States. And that's the same, same thing with the Russians. And, and frankly, I can't tell you. 
I can't, you know, I can't predict that. But already the Saudis, I think, have done more damage in many ways to democratic interests and the rule of law around the globe uh, when you consider the Wahhabi sect. And the, the royal family has always operated on a compact with the Wahhabis, which is as long as you show total loyalty to the royal family, will allow you to oppress the people with the most unbelievable religious strictures. It's sort of what's happening here in the United States with the, uh, these moral authoritarians on the Supreme Court banning abortion and stuff like that. It's, if you control people's bodies, you know, like the Taliban, the, the country's falling apart, but their priority is what women wear and how little they can show. I mean, that was how Saudi Arabia's operated. and But, but they've spread this reactionary form of Islam around the world, the Wahhabism, and it's had a profound effect, and you can see what it spawned with the Taliban, Boko Haram, Islamic State, ISIS, you name it. All of the, the grief we've had around the world, particularly from terrorism, uh, in many ways has been inspired by Wahhabism. It goes back to 1979 with the takeover of the, the Mecca mosques, and the royal family said, wait a minute, this, this is in the Iranian Revolution, and they said, they said Islam is back. It works. It unifies people. The only thing that matters is belonging. To say you're a Muslim, and then then you and it's the same thing is happening the far right. And the other thing with the far right in this country is you can just make stuff up about the ten year old rape victim in Ohio. You just make stuff up. It doesn't matter uh, as long as you show loyalty to the cause. So we're seeing this not just in Saudi Arabia, but we're seeing it everywhere. And in as long as we're on oil, Ian, if I were the Russians, what I would do would be to encourage the Iranians to go to war with Saudi Arabia, destroy their oil facilities, and then think about the price of oil. This is what I wrote about in Sleeping with the Devil. Is some catastrophic attack on Saudi oil facilities, which is not impossible. It happened in 2006, as I recall. Um, but a major attack, and then all of a sudden, we're paying $25, $30 for a gallon of gas. Then you start talking about inflation, crushing inflation. Well, apparently MBS, as much as he has disdain uh, for Biden, he absolutely admires Putin, and he's in a compact with Putin with OPEC+. Plus. So at this point, and you just said that he's selling discounted Russian oil, and making a fortune. So at this moment, he's, he's doing well out of the uh, the war that the Russians are pursuing in Ukraine. Well, so is Putin with the price of oil. I mean, we are really stuck. And to blame this on, on American politicians, it, it, this, this is circumstance that we've arrived at. This has been building for years. Um, our addiction to oil. And Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia was such a humiliation. I just don't know why anybody advised him to go. It's just a total humiliation. Um, and it, it's sad for the United States. I mean, in a way, we created Saudi Arabia by developing its oil industry and protecting it with the Fifth Fleet for all these years. And that's, that's all long gone history. And of course, 
Russia, is, as John McCain said, is a, is a gas station with uh, nuclear weapons. So as long as we're addicted to oil, which, by the way, former President George W. Bush made that statement that we're addicted to oil, as long as we're addicted to oil, MBS and Putin will be on top, right? Cause Hello. Mayhem, mayhem and murder. Hello, fascism. You got Russian fascism, which is no other way to describe what Putin's doing, and you got Saudi Islamic fascism, and in this whole era of enlightenment and democracy and the rest of it is under threat. You know, if you go to Steven Pinker and people like that, you know, or the end of history people, it's all over, and we're going to have you know have comfortable lives. They're just wrong. Well, we have incipient fascism here in the United States. There was a fascist coup attempt on January the 6th, and Trump controls the GOP, and uh, they, with the help of the Supreme Court, they could well turn America into a one-party state before we know it. Ian, it's, you don't understand the corruption. The Supreme Court was bought by the far right. It was bought. It bought politicians. It was bought... Uh, the Secret Service, we still don't know the story of why their texts are gone, but their texts are, there's a federal law, they're records that cannot be destroyed. And this whole idea that they're gone from the 5th and 6th of January, we don't, I'm, I'm waiting for the, for the final story on this, to, to really comment on it. But the real plan, as I understand it, was to effectively detain and arrest Pence so he couldn't certify the vote, so Trump could say the election's not done yet. And nobody's focusing on that because there may, and I, this is speculation, been orders to the Secret Service, get Pence out of there because of the, ostensibly because of the riots. But so he's removed, he can't certify the vote. And Secret Service was part of that. And we simply don't know what part of the Secret Service is loyal to Trump, just as we don't know what part of the military is is far right and how they would react to more troubles in Washington. All you need is the 82nd Airborne part of it to fly to Washington and the game, it's game over. Well, we know that Tony Anato, who was a deputy chief of staff, who was, was the head of the Secret Service detail, as well, a uh, former Secret Service guy. And he, I mean, Pence didn't want to get into the limo for the very reason that you just said. He was suspicious that he said to his, his detail, he said, I'm not worried about you guys. He said, I'm worried about the driver. Where are they going to take me? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I would have been too. I mean, clearly, this was a coup. And it's a question of people are so apathetic. I don't even think, I'm not even sure the way this is going to come out. But if 10 years ago, Ian, I had talked to you about that the Secret Service is going to kidnap the vice president to throw an election, you would not even have considered that for a treatment for Hollywood. It would have been so conspiratorial and, and just stupid. You would have just ignored me. But now we are talking about this real possibility. And I, and I just don't, you and I don't know how bad it is until we get the records on this. And I fear for the worst. Well, Robert, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, for that happy message? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm slumping in depression as we speak. 
but uh, I appreciate the information, and thanks again. Great. Thanks. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Baer, who's one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude, and he's considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his latest book just out is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the one man in America who not only shares MBS's objections to reduce fossil fuel dependence to save the planet, but was able to stymie for a second time Biden's efforts to do something about it. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Dayen, who is the executive editor of the, of the American Prospect, the winner of the Ida and Studs Terkel Prize, and the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, and Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin Story. And his latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And he has an article in the American Prospect, May Build Back Better Never Be Spoken Of Again. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Dayen. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the idea that Build Back Better should never be spoken again is not that we don't need it, that the environment doesn't need it desperately to transition away from fossil fuels in order to deal with global warming. We're, We're way behind the curve in doing that in any case. And we've just seen the Biden go to Saudi Arabia and kiss the ring and come back empty-handed, and uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the psychotic punk who is about to become king, is lecturing the world on how you can't have all these emissions policies affecting uh, oil production. We just need to have more oil. So with MBS and uh, with Joe Manchin on the same team, it's looking pretty bleak for the environment, is it not? I mean, I would say so. Uh, Manchin delivered the hammer blow to uh, any efforts from Congress to legislate in this arena when he said that he would not go along with any reconciliation bill that included uh, measures tackling climate change. So uh, that that's kind of the ball game. He tried to walk it back the next day, but uh, as as President Biden, I think, rightly stated, uh, we got to move forward. We've we've essentially been waiting for Godot here uh, for the last 18 months, whether or not Manchin is going to agree to something uh, on on climate. And uh, I, I think it's at this point time to move on and and hope that uh, we can take some executive actions to uh in that arena and then you know but but obviously Manchin isn't going to come through but didn't the white house notice all along and this goes back to the very 
beginning of uh, the first negotiations. Manchin is the chair of this, the Senate Energy Committee. He's received more money from fossil fuel companies than any other politician in Washington. His family owns a coal distribution company from which he pulls something like a million bucks out of a year. So why would they have thought somehow that this guy would be on the side of transitioning away from coal and fossil fuels into a clean, renewable electric future, which is, of course, necessary? He doesn't seem like the most reliable negotiating partner, does he there, Ian? Uh, I mean... It was a, uh, a force of circumstance. I mean, we every Republican is opposed to doing anything on climate. And so you have 50 Democrats. And if you're going to pass anything, it's going to have to be done with a reconciliation bill by a party line vote. And so Manchin represents vote number 50 that you must have. So uh, I, I think uh, I tend to agree with you that it was a hope against hope kind of situation, uh, but uh, there was no other legislative alternative here. And uh, I think what we've, what we've seen is that Manchin was really not interested in doing it from the get-go, uh, but he was sort of stringing it along and stringing it along uh, so that uh, he, he wouldn't have to take the full brunt of the criticism. And, and now here we are, uh, and, and we're kind of out of time. So they went back to the same bitter well, but which is pretty puzzling. But the focus, of course, of the ire, particularly of Democrats, is on Manchin and also on cinema. Uh, shouldn't the focus also be on the Republicans? Well, sure. I mean, as I mentioned, uh, uh, you know, Republicans certainly aren't going to come to the table on this kind of bill. Uh, if you want to go even back further, uh, the fact that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema were put in the position to be able to block this agenda as a function of Democrats not doing uh, better in various elections in states where Biden won, places like Maine, uh, which was unable to defeat Susan Collins. Uh, North Carolina was a close race at the presidential level, uh, but uh, the governor is a Democrat and won in 2020, but they, uh, Democrats ran a, a pretty bad candidate who got caught up in a in a sexting scandal. Um, so, if there were two other seats out there, uh, then then we wouldn't be talking about Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema so much. Uh, instead, uh, we have this 50-50 Senate the way it is. Uh, Republicans obviously are are you know the main impediment here to doing anything under regular order. Uh, and, and that's why this reconciliation, which only requires a party line vote, is, is has been brought into play um, uh, once again, because Manchin and Cinema won't eliminate the filibuster and just make it uh, a situation where you can just pass things by a majority. What a novel concept. Um, the, the entire two years here of of Biden trying and failing to get his agenda passed is a function of structural factors, political failures, uh, and and really a, 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 a lack of focus on the kind of governing that needs to be done to show people that uh, you're you're behind them. The fact that the, the the Trump tax cuts, which are historically unpopular for for a tax cut, to 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 have negative perception among the public is unprecedented. 
every single Democrat, including Joe Manchin, including Kirsten Sinema, voted against it in 2017. And the fact that you can't actually pass uh, anything dealing with the Trump tax cuts only five years later, when they were unpopular, are tilted completely toward the rich, uh, and and would satisfy any kind of uh, uh, situ- situation from from people like Manchin and say, you know, we have to we have to pay for whatever spending that we're going to do. Uh, it, it speaks to a real a real broken nature of the way in which Democrats govern. And of course, Senator Kirsten Sinema, she's actually even more adamant against raising taxes on corporations and wealthy individuals than uh, even Manchin. So, well, well, yes, but it's not just the Senate, it's the House. I mean, there are a number of House centrists, people like Josh Gottheimer and, and Kurt Schrader, who actually lost his primary uh, largely because of, of trying to disassociate himself with, with mainstream Democrats, uh, who uh, have, have also, in the, in the past week, and maybe triggered Manchin to, to finally pull the plug, uh, said that they didn't want to see any tax increases. Um, so uh, these are also people who voted against the Trump tax cuts and are now reversing themselves. And you can talk about the power of big money, the fact that the wealthy and, and the well-connected have just much more purchase in Washington than anybody else, and or, or whatever other reason you can come up with. The fact is that in the Obama, even in the Obama administration, tax cuts on the wealth or tax increases on the wealthy were put forward in the Affordable Care Act, for example. In the Clinton's Clinton's first budget, for for all you want to say about Bill Clinton, he was able to increase taxes on the wealthy in his first budget. We Democrats can't do now even that bare minimum that was done in the Obama and Clinton administrations. It's it really says something. And uh, there should be a lot of soul searching from that. So now that Manchin has killed the possibility of dealing with climate change and getting some kind of tax fairness so that the wealthy who have gotten so much richer, the billionaires during this uh, these COVID years, than before. It's just that the statistics are just so clear of income inequality. It's just shocking. So what we are now left with is the best that they can do is do something about drug prices, price negotiation with through Medicare. But even if they do that, that according to your article, David Dayan, it doesn't kick in until 2026, two years after the next presidential elections and a two-year extension of the Affordable Care Act subsidies uh, that were set to expire at the end of this year. So that's what 18 months of fruitless negotiations have brought us, right? Yeah, and we should do it. I mean, uh, and and I I suspect that that Congress will do it. And, you know, it, it says something about how much money there is in the pharmaceutical system that you could put together a very modest bill it doesn't even kick in until 2026. That only do, uh, involves negotiation on 10 drugs that year. It extends to 20 uh, after 2029. And you can still get $300 billion of savings for the federal government out of that, in addition to hundreds of billions of dollars in savings for ordinary people. So uh, that's, however modest, that is an advance. And then these subsidies, which were in the, the American Rescue Plan that Biden passed very early in his term, 
uh, were going to expire at the end of this year. And and if uh, they are not renewed, people will start getting notices uh, who are you know people in the insurance exchanges under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they would get notices in October, right before the election, saying your your insurance premiums are going up 20 percent, 30 percent, 40 percent, 50 percent. So it's important to do that as well. Uh, it it th- those subsidies, uh, increased subsidies, ensure that nobody pays more than I think it's 9.5 percent uh, of their income on health insurance. And so you know, it's worthwhile. It's it, it should be done. I think it will be done. But it's certainly not the ambitions that uh, President Biden and, and the Democrats had going in. So then, David, Day, in, in the last uh, few minutes, I mean, obviously, it's an appalling situation where you have a situation where the, the plutocracy owns the Republican Party outright, and they are absolutely adamantly against just about anything except giving tax breaks to the super rich and protecting billionaires and millionaires, and that's pretty clear. And then the Democrats, all you have to do, uh, Wall Street and these other powerful interests, all they have to do is peel off two Democrats, and they can block any kind of reform, which is what we've witnessed here. And, of course, just the other day, Manchin put the last nail in the coffin. But my understanding is from other reporting is that the White House did not exactly handle this well the first time around. And is it true from your reporting, uh, David, that they could have got a deal with Manchin and Cinema, but somehow the White House blew it or irritated him? What, what I do mean, you know about that? Well, I think, and I'm going to be doing a lot more reporting on this, but uh, what I think is this. Uh, no faction of the party is blameless here. I mean, obviously, you have centrists and and the Mansion Cinema uh, Axis who uh, did a lot of damage. Uh, the Biden administration, I don't think, did the kind of negotiation that would have uh, any led to being being successful. Uh, uh, there wasn't any priority setting at the very beginning here. Uh, to say, uh, in, instead of dragging this out over 18 months, you could have started in January of 2021 when Biden was inaugurated and said, all right, what is it that we want here? What, what, what are you willing to do, Joe Manchin? What are you willing to do, Kirsten Cinema? Let's get it done and, and, and get it out the door. And uh, that would have been a far preferable option than this stringing along and stringing along, which was, you know, arguably more harmful politically. Um, uh, the fact is that over the last 18 months, the, the, the Democrat that you hear the most from, that is most on television, uh, that is most symbolic of, of where the Democrats uh, are right now, if you're just on the surface level, just are paying attention, is Joe Manchin. I mean, he's the one that, that you hear about. What will Joe Manchin do? What is he going to want? What is he allowing? Uh, and it's it's debilitating for, for other Democrats to have to, to go through this. So I don't think anyone takes you know full blame for this, but I don't think anyone can be rid of blame for this on all sides. Progressives, too, uh, uh, was, was the ask here at the outset of a very sweeping set of reforms too much 
and ended up, uh, you know, making it hard to narrow down because everybody had a stake in doing one piece or, or another of the main bill. So I think there are a lot of things, that, a lot of a, a lot of reckoning that has to go on in the entire party about how they're putting together policy, how they're setting agendas, and what they need to do moving forward. And something would have been better than nothing. So I thank you for joining us here today, David Dan. All right, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with David Dan, who is the executive editor of the American Prospect and the winner of the Ida and Studs Terkel Prize and the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foucault Fraud and Fat Cat the Steve Mnuchin Story. And his latest book is Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And he has an article at the American Prospect, May Build Back Better Never Be Spoken Of Again. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into why the Justice Department is sitting on its hands prosecuting low-level insurrections instead of those who planned and led the coup attempt. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Corey Brettschneider, who's a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics. He's also a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School and the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. And his latest book is Decisions and Dissents of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. Welcome to Background Briefing, Corey Brettschneider. Thanks, Ian. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And, of course, ever since the death of Ju- of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when they rushed through the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, you now have this supermajority of these incredible conservatives on the court. And one of their last uh, decisions in the last uh, session of the court was to take up a very controversial notion that could end up with a situation where the Republican legislatures around the country would have no constraints, there'd be no legal mechanism to stop them from unlimited gerrymandering and voter suppression. So it is a frightening prospect of what's happened to the court. And I've always been so puzzled and so frustrated by the idea that just one man, Leonard Leo of the Federal Society, had has this inordinate power to be able to select all these people and get them onto the court with the help of enormous amounts of money from these dark money vehicles that he created. Half a billion dollars was actually spent to get Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett onto the court. So can you make the case that our Supreme Court has been bought? Well, I mean, however we got here, we're in real trouble. I think that um, money played a part of it. Um, I think also a president who was really devoted to uh, enshrining uh, right-wing ideology in uh, the, the American constitutional system long after he'd be gone. And he succeeded at that, unfortunately, with those three appointments. And it really is as dire as you're suggesting across just a long 
range of issues. Uh, you know, there was a period where you could look to the Supreme Court uh, as a source of light on civil liberties, and it's now the exact opposite. And that is really becoming solidified. And it's not just a conservative majority. It really is becoming Clarence Thomas's court and the viciousness of the Dobbs decision, in particular, the uh, reversal of Roe versus Wade, the way that it was done reads to me like a declaration of war on the traditional, the, the longstanding idea of privacy as at the root of not just one provision of the Constitution, but the Constitution as a whole. So its abortion rights, of course, are the most immediate uh, loss when it comes to civil liberties. But I also am looking for an assault on the court's gay rights jurisprudence, uh, for instance, maybe even as crazy as this may sound to some of your listeners, the right to use contraception, a uh, longstanding sort of bedrock of the right of privacy. And then, yes, so the protections of democracy are just looking so thin, whether we're talking about partisan gerrymandering or the kind of decision that we saw in Bush versus Gore, which, of course, even if it, it didn't justify the insurrection, it certainly provided some foundation for the totally wacky legal arguments that were made uh, in defense of the idea that the vice president alone could decide this election. So we are in real trouble. The only solace that I see is that we've been there before, and it's been the court that's really uh, led the destruction of constitutional democracy in cases like Dred Scott denying legal personhood to black people, um, Plessy versus Ferguson enshrining separate but equal. And, you know, if you look earlier, the role of the Supreme Court in, in bolstering the Alien and Sedition Acts. And we fought back and recovered from those moments. And we're going to have to figure out how to do so here. And it's not going to be through litigation. It's going to be through other means, legislation in particular, executive action. And uh, we have to be ready for that. The court is no longer the friend of civil liberties. That is absolutely for sure. And again, I'm speaking with Corey Bretschneider, who's a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics, as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. And his latest book is Decisions and Dissents of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. So what do we do then about the current situation where we had on January the 6th, for all intents and purposes, a fascist coup attempt that came very, very close, as you mentioned, but for the actions of the vice president, it would have been very different. And, and it turns out that it's pretty clear that Trump and, and the strategists around him, like Stephen Bannon, who in fact spoke about this on tape where the Mother Jones have released, the idea was to take it to the House um, where the 26, and it, the vote would be along the number of legislatures, state legislatures, as right. opposed to the count of seats in the House. So the Republicans have 26 state legislators, legislatures, the Democrats 22, and that would have made Trump the president. So they had a plan. It looks as if they've actually are doubling down on even a better plan. And even though this independent state legislature theory that the Supreme Court has taken up is not going to affect this coming election. It could certainly affect the 2024 elections. So can you make the case that we are facing the, the stark possibility of the end of democracy, of a one-party state like Putin's Russia being implemented 
by this court and by the Republicans and a party that, by the way, is controlled by Donald Trump, the same coup plotter that almost succeeded on January the 6th? Look, yes, <laughs> I, I hate to to agree with you, but, um, you know, I think the best argument for how vulnerable our democracy is at this moment is how close we came to precisely that kind of scenario, or at least one in which there was true chaos and, and crisis thrown into the system. There wasn't just the riot. It wasn't just the violence. It wasn't just this speech where Trump incited the violence. That, that's been a lot of the focus. But as you say, the more we learn, the more we see that this was just one part of a wider plan to really exploit the vulnerability of our constitutional system and in particular the vulnerability of the Electoral College and um, Bannon. But really, I think the architect of it is John Eastman, who had the ear of the president who spoke in, in a, I would say, uh, unprofessional and unlawyerly way, uh, understatement of the year at the lip speech. And that was his idea that the 12th Amendment should be read in a way that allowed the vice president alone to reject, you know, without any evidence, by the way, of fraud, but to reject the electors rightfully sent by the states. And one possibility would be that coming short of the electoral votes that would throw things, as you said, to the House. Another possibility would be that the state legislatures, on the theory that you referenced, the idea that the states have complete control over the electors, that they would send their own slates of electors um, to Washington to be certified for Trump. And, you know, this might sound like a lot of legal hocus pocus, and it is complete BS without question, made up through the mind and perversion of John Eastman, the perversion of our democracy. But, you know, it could have worked. It really could have. I mean, uh, you know, the idea that the future of democracy rested in the hands of uh, Vice President Pence. I'm glad that he did his basic, most basic duty in this case. But what if he didn't? What if he was weaker? What if Dan Quayle had said the opposite to him instead of counseling him that, of course, he couldn't do this and said, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not a scholar of the Constitution. Uh, you know, that that idea that we're so vulnerable to not only the, the presidency, but in this case, the presidency exploiting this formal role. Really, it was it's just a formality of the vice president presiding over the certification of the Electoral College uh, shows that this system is vulnerable. And let me just for listeners to zoom out a little bit. Uh, this isn't a, a crazy idea that presidential systems are going to collapse into dictatorship. It's basically happened and my understanding is every presidential system uh, used throughout Latin America, parts of Asia, has collapsed except for at one point in its history, except for the United States, although we came certainly very close on January 6th, and Costa Rica. It is a vulnerable system. It's got this top-heavy executive, extremely powerful. And then when you combine that with this really obscure, convoluted, and downright frightening, it turns out, um, uh, mechanism for election that we call the Electoral College. We were and are vulnerable, absolutely. So let's talk about the work that the January 6th committee is doing, and they do have another hearing on Thursday. And the more recent hearing, of course, was quite 
a blockbuster in terms of the testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, the chief aide to the final White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. We've seen a lot of defiance from both Mark Meadows and from Steve Bannon, who basically just (laughs) brushed off the House subpoenas. What I don't understand, Corey, is why is the House doing all of the legwork here, building a case? What the hell is the Justice Department doing? They have the resources, infinitely more powerful resources than the House Committee has. They have subpoena power that people like Meadows and Bannon could not ignore a Justice Department subpoena, whereas they flouted the ones from the House Committee. They have enormous resources to investigate. They have the entire FBI at their disposal. What in God's name are they doing? I mean, they've had, what, 800-odd of these people that stormed the Capitol. They've nailed a whole bunch of them. But surely, as prosecutors, they should be going after the, the architects, the planners, the finances of this coup attempt. And for the life of me, I don't understand why they're sitting back watching on TV what the House is doing, uh, and they could be doing so much more, and they could have been doing it for so much longer. Uh, I absolutely agree with you. When it comes to what he's thinking, I mean, I worry that what it's about is, um, uh, you know, a kind of idea of the institution and the protection of the institution and that we it was a moment in history that's passed that we're now now you know over you saw that for instance in the ford pardon of nixon at its worst and you might have a version of that kind of wanting to move past there's a worry i think too and it's part of the problem of the justice department being beholden really to uh to the new president to biden worrying about political pushback and harm to the current administration Um, All of that is to say that the reasons aren't good reasons. And so the dynamic that's at play here is that the House and here I think the House um, that the that the uh, the committee is doing an amazing job of presenting the criminal case against Trump and his subordinates to the American people. And they really are laying it out like a criminal case with the idea that the pressure will be so strong on the Department of Justice uh, including those political pressures, not worrying about blowback from Trump, but from his own party, that they have to uh, indict because the evidence is so clear. The political pressure uh, uh, to do so is there, and hopefully they'll make the right decision. I think it's just so misguided of the Department of Justice if they are thinking along the lines of Gerald Ford, who, of course, and just to, to be clear about what I'm saying, for Ford, uh, the idea was, look, Watergate happened. It was terrible. But now we've restored ethical people to the White House. We have a good administration. Let's move forward. And so we'll pardon Nixon for all of his crimes that took place during his time as president. That was a disastrous decision that really betrayed the idea that a president is not above the law and, and took away the possibility of seeing the prosecution of Nixon, the model that we should have for our current moment. Instead, we have a model of Uh, Let's try to move on and forget about it, and it will never happen again. Well, it did happen, (laughs) and we certainly have had a second criminal president, and, you know, in many ways he's worse than Nixon, and his actions uh, are more dangerous to the future of democracy as, uh, you know, not to underplay Nixon's own crimes. 
Um, but, you know, it's just a really wrongheaded idea that we should move past this, uh, that Garland seems to have. Well, but isn't it clear that, you know, Donald Trump has been a career criminal in his professional life and in his political life, and that this country will never, you know, the divisions which he's exploited, uh, which, by the way, serve Putin's interests, are just so tragic and they worsen by the day. And if he runs, and he's apparently going to announce in September that he's going to run, or at least that's what leaks have indicated. I mean, if you don't put this guy in jail, he's not going to go away. He's going to haunt our politics, divide this country, and possibly even get reelected in 2024. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, I'll, I'll push the Nixon parallel again. What Nixon was able to do was rehabilitate himself, make it look like it hadn't been that big a deal that he had, uh, you know, ordered all these crimes through the plumber's unit, uh, covered them up and criminally obstructed justice. And, you know, that's what you get if Trump uh, is not going to be stopped by the Department of Justice. You know, one thing I, it's really unfortunate as a constitutional scholar for me to say this, but I I just don't see any other way around it. The check that we supposedly have been given by the framers of the presidency, the ultimate check was supposed to be uh, impeachment. And the assumption was that criminal presidents who committed high crimes and misdemeanors uh, would be, you know, removed from office, um, impeached in the House, removed from office in the Senate. And this is the part that we haven't focused enough on, but disqualified from running again after the vote to remove. Now, that didn't happen twice, including after January 6th. That says to me that is in a deep way a, a broken check. And so we need to have the most obvious other one that's there. It's not one that was clearly defended by the framers. They also didn't clearly oppose it. I think they just disagreed about whether sitting presidents could be indicted. But what they certainly did agree about, and, and this is also underplayed, I think, is that absolutely a former president could be uh, indicted for his or her crimes uh, in office. And we've got to use that check. We've got to see that it isn't just impeachment that's available to us. And as impeachment has been revealed to to really be a failure, uh, we've got to turn to this other one that actually does have the potential of working and, as you say, stopping this criminal from uh, running again and possibly winning. And possibly, let's just be blunt about it, destroying our democracy. Well, Corey Brechenader, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Always a pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Corey Brechenader, who's a professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law and politics, as well as a visiting professor of law at Fordham Law School. He's the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. And his latest book is Decisions and Dissent of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, A Selection. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. 
Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave in this land here Yeah.